Welcome to Plaid Sunday at North Wake. Where one out of five North Wakers agree, shirts that look like tablecloths are awesome. That's what my brother said to me. He said, your shirt looks like a tablecloth. Okay, and you wear black all the time. All right. I love you guys. Um, my name is Noah Joyner, and uh, I am the director of Haiti Love. And uh, what Haiti Love does is, is really a lot of what you saw in the video here. We take, uh, we take churches from other places that we're partnered with and, and, and trips from Northwake uh, to Haiti to work with Haitian pastors living in the Dominican. And our, our, our desire is to encourage them to go to the ends of the earth and, and to plant churches in their Samaria. Their Samaria is Haiti. Um, it's a hard place for them to go. Uh, most Haitians don't want to go back to Haiti. They're in the Dominican for a reason. They don't want to go back. Um, so our encouragement to them is to actively engage in church planting. And so we want to motivate them, encourage them, and stir them up to do that work. So that's the work that we're about there. And so I spend a lot of time talking Haiti with people. And uh, a lot of times people ask me, well, what is the spiritual... Uh, landscape of Haiti. What, what, what do people in Haiti believe about God? And there's this saying that always comes to mind whenever people ask that question. Haiti is 50% Catholic, 50% Evangelical, and 100% Voodoo. Now, on the surface, that's just bad math, right? Because it's 200%. But what it does is it gets at a deep reality uh, for the, the lives and beliefs of many Haitians. Uh, voodoo basically says that there's one God. His name is Banzi. Um, and it's, it's really fascinating. Um, when, when I preach and I say God, they say Banzi. Right? So you can see this overlap to even the way that they talk about God is really wrapped up with voodoo. And so voodoo says there's one God and he's off in the distance somewhere. He doesn't interact with human affairs. And he has other spiritual beings that are kind of under him who oversee different aspects of life. And so what Haitians do is they make offerings to these different spiritual beings as the way that they navigate their day-to-day -day life. So many of them, uh, even if they claim to be Christians, even if they're in a church worshiping, many times you'll see they'll have like a bracelet or a necklace on. Actually, last time I was there, a young man came forward, confessed that he wanted to follow Jesus. One of the first things they did is uh, encourage him to take off a necklace that he was wearing because it was representative of his voodoo beliefs. We've even heard of pastors who practice voodoo to grow their churches. And so you can see the way that voodoo has creeped into and has great effect on the beliefs and practices um, of, of many of the people in Haiti. A lot of people, uh, when, you, when you speak in terms of taking one belief system and another belief system and putting them together, often we call that syncretism. And syncretism is not new. Um, and it's not particular to Haiti. Pretty much anywhere you go in the world, you're going to see elements of it. Um, it's, it's definitely not new. If you look with me in Genesis 3, uh, you'll see that it even, it even starts there. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may not eat of the trees, in the, we may eat of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is, that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. 
But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. So we see here a desire in Eve to listen to the words of the serpent and to listen to the words of God. She wanted both and she wanted to put them together. Well, they take the fruit and they eat and we know what happens next. Death enters in. And so we see here a, a deep propensity in man to put different religions together, to be both and types of people. But we also see another principle that syncretism and sin and rebellion always equal death. I've got bad news. Everyone in this room, everyone who has ever lived is a syncretistic sinner. All of us. And because that is so, the just penalty of death is on us. Because sin and syncretism is an assault against the creator of the universe. It's an infraction. It's a breaking of, an assault onto a person. And that person's name is God, the creator of the universe. Therefore, the penalty is death. One of my favorite theologians uh, says it this way. Everybody must get stoned. Bob Dylan may have had a wholly different thing in mind, but he's on to something. Everyone deserves to be dragged out into the street and put to death because they have committed treason against the creator. So the question we face this morning is what is your voodoo? What is your 100%? What has crept into your life such that it affects your daily practice, the way that you worship, your obedience, and your devotion to God? And what are you going to do about it? What is the thing that at every turn has you questioning God? What is the thing that affects you deeply and tempts you to listen to another voice? I see three things in our context that are common temptations and distractions from worship and devotion to the Lord our God. First, the desire to be the most important person in my world. We're going to call that self-olatry. Secondly, the desire to be accepted or thought well of by friends and family, or famolatry. And thirdly, the desire to be wealthy and have more stuff, or stuffolatry. So it's my job this morning to help you sniff out and kill syncretism and idolatry. Last week we saw that any place that that encroached in on or competed for worship with the one true God was to be chopped down, burned, and destroyed. This week, we're going to see that any person who competes for or encroaches on or tempts the people of God to be drawn away from the Lord their God shall be put to death. As Larry wisely proclaimed last week, no Yahweh plus Yahweh, period. God will not tolerate the worship of idols because he is the only being worthy of worship 
and he loves his people deeply. God is the only being worthy of worship, and he loves his people, so he will not tolerate it. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 13, and as we do that, uh, I will pray that God will prepare our hearts to hear his word. Father, we do pray that you would prepare us to hear from you. Father, that as we hear this sermon about a sermon thousands of years ago, that we would see its weight and relevance in our lives today. We would be convicted about its truth, about the truth about us, and we'd be motivated, empowered, and have a deep desire to live differently. We know that this is only something you can do, and so we call on you to do it now, and we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 5. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But the prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. You may have noticed in this passage a, a simple structure that could be uh, explained in terms of who, what, how, and why. So firstly, who is speaking? What are they saying? How should God's people respond? And why should they respond that way? This chapter is divided into three sections, and each of the sections is structured that way. And it's God's way of emphasizing one major point. No Yahweh plus, Yahweh period. God has already made this abundantly clear. No Yahweh plus, Yahweh period. And he did that uh, previously in Deuteronomy 5, chapter, or verses 6 through 10. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So you see that language repeated. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall, make, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. No Yahweh plus, Yahweh period. He's saying, I love you. I rescued you. He's saying, don't have any other gods. Don't even have carved images. And don't bow down to them. He's saying, I am jealous for you. Like a husband. He loves them. And has deep relationship with them. And is keeping them. Let's take that simple structure I mentioned before and see what the passage is saying. So first we're going to ask the question of who is speaking? We see in verse 1 that uh, there may arise among, uh, um, 
may arise among the people a dreamer of dreams or a prophet. Now, we don't know much about this guy. All we know is that he makes some prophecy or has some dream that then comes to pass. We do know what he's saying, though. He's saying, let us go after other gods and let us serve them. So we see that he is preaching a message of Yahweh plus, not Yahweh period. So he is not a representative of God. So how should the people respond to this individual? We see that God provides a multifaceted approach to dealing with this situation. We're going to see a put off and put on sort of structure. He says, first, there's something I want you to not do or to stop doing. And then there's seven things I want you to do. Firstly, he says to them, put off in verse 3. Don't listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer. So he's saying, don't listen. Stop listening. All right, so put off listening to that dreamer or that prophet. Then in verse 4, we see six additional things that should be done. They should walk after the Lord. They should fear him. They should keep his commandments. They should obey his voice. They should serve him. They should hold fast to him. Each of these instructions are loving expressions of God's desire for his people to have him. He's saying, I want you to have me. And if you do these things, you will have me. Each of these instructions also denotes different aspects of a very dynamic relationship between God and his people. They are to walk after him as a leader. They are to fear him as a just judge. They are to keep his commands as a sovereign ruler. They are to obey his voice as a father. They are to serve him as a master. And they are to hold fast to him like a wife to a husband. It's interesting, the word here for hold fast to God is the same word used in Genesis 2, where a husband is commanded to leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So there's a denotation of unity and togetherness and commitment wrapped up in this idea of holding fast. God says, when you are tempted by those who who would seek to drag you away, come to me, I'm here, I'm near, I love you. So when you're tempted, come to me. I'm here. I want to help you. I love you. Care for you. Lastly, we see in verse 5 that God commands the people of Israel to put to death the dreamer or the prophet who has tried to lead the people to worship other gods. We could call this the put to death section. Last week, we saw that people were to destroy any place where false gods were worshipped. Here we see that the people are to put to death or destroy any person who would lead them to worship foreign gods. The bottom line is this, that the people of God must respond with radical devotion and obedience to God. Nothing less than radical devotion and obedience to God. So why should the people respond this way? Verse 3 shows us that this dreamer or prophet and all that he does and says is a test from the Lord. He is testing their love for him. He is bringing the depth of their heart and their soul out for all to see. Who they love is evidenced in who they listen to, who they follow, who they serve, and who they hold fast to. We see another aspect of God's relationship with his people. 
He's a tester of his people. He's an examiner. He wants to show with absolute clarity the disposition and devotion of every heart and soul. He does this through testing his people. How we respond to those who would seek to drag us away from God, tell us who we are and what we love. There's a common belief and teaching among us that you can love God while showing no obedience or devotion to God. Many want us to believe that we can love God while serving other functional gods. Jesus crushes both of these notions when he says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Love for God is evidenced in keeping his commands. There's a one-to-one connection there. You love me, you will keep my commands. Then in Matthew 6, 24, he says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Jesus has money and God in view here. He says, you may not have two masters. It's clear our love for God is measured by obedience, not intention. How we serve, not what we say. Simply put, loving obedience to a loving God. We see the love of God in his testing of the people. To test is to love because it shows how things really are. So you could have a student who was a failure, and if he went untested, he would never know it. Testing reveals something about the one being tested. And what God wants to show is the, dis- the disposition and devotion of their heart and soul. God gives further reasoning why the people should respond this way. They should respond this way, in verse 5, because the prophet or dreamer has taught rebellion. As we established earlier, sin always, rebellion always results in death. The penalty for rebellion is death. We see that the highest of reasoning for this response is seen in the fact that God brought the people out of the land of Egypt and redeemed them out of the house of slavery. God uses this as a title for himself over and over and over and over again in the book. And what you need to remember about that is that he's saying, I'm the God that loves you. I'm the God that's committed to you. I'm the God that rescued you. He's communicating to them his commitment, love, and devotion to them in that statement. So this is a re-emphasis of the relationship between God and his people. He's saying, I'm the God that loves you. Remember when I saved you from your captures? Remember when I bought you from the slave master? Think of a young wife who runs into an old boyfriend. She begins to wonder what could have been And he slips her his number and says, hey, let's catch up sometime. Later, the husband finds the number. He's jealous, and rightly so. He calmly and lovingly confronts his wife. He takes her hand and looks into her eyes and says, I love you. Do you remember how things were before we met? You see, she was homeless and addicted. And when he met her, she was owned by someone else. He bought her because he loved her. And now he's saying, what we have is so much greater than that. He's saying, I love you and don't 
Forget it. Love and relationship is the motivation for devotion. Love is always the fuel for true obedience. So how about you? What if we took the who, what, how, why model and pointed it at you? What if you pointed it at yourself? What would you find? What people in your life and and in your world seek to drag you away from God? What are they saying? How should you respond to them? And why should you respond that way? Let's say there's a public figure in our time who was teaching that the notion that there's only one way to heaven or to say there's only one God was arrogant. Maybe this person was a doctor or a talk show host. Maybe they give things away on their shows so it seems... Uh, So it makes them seem like they're a really nice person. This person is known for saying that the person or thing you should serve most is you. You should do what is best for you and makes you feel best about yourself. You should serve yourself above all else. How should we as the people of God in this place at this time respond to this type of talk? Should we put them to death? Should we tear down their studio audience? Layers directed from last week, encouraging us to inquire if the New Testament affirms or upholds the same type of teaching or commandments is immensely helpful here. So does the New Testament ever command, endorse, or encourage the execution of false prophets or those who speak contrary to God? Never. In fact, it does just the opposite. We see in Matthew 5, 44 through 45. Jesus is saying, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Jesus is making an argument here, appealing to the very character of God, the very merciful character of God, who though people are in enmity towards him, he still lavishes, lavishes his grace and kindness on them. So therefore, we, as sons of our Father, should lavish grace and kindness even on our enemies. We should be lovers of our enemies. So when we hear someone or see someone on television or or, uh, interact with someone who is in opposition to the notion that there is one God who deserves to be obeyed and worshipped, we can respond with love and care and prayer. We see also in 2 Timothy that Paul is charging Timothy, a young pastor, uh, to, to be about God's work. He says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So Paul is encouraging this young pastor, and I think, uh, by the way, encouraging us as Christians to trust that God is the one who judges and to communicate very clearly with people who have gathered for themselves, 
people who will say to them the things that they want to hear. Everybody wants to hear, you're the most important person in the world. Everyone wants to hear that. I want to hear that. Nobody ever tells me that. Except for me. I tell me that all the time. Paul is saying when we hear that type of talk, we are to respond with the gospel, with a trust that God will judge and God will handle. So a proper response to those who would seek to lead us away from the Lord our God does not include putting them to death, but the other principles we highlighted in verse 3 and 4 back in Deuteronomy 13 still endure. So, don't listen to Oprah, Deepak, Joyce, Joel, or Glenn. Whose voice is loudest in your life? Whose voice is loudest in your car? Right, your commute. What are you filling yourself with? What do you hear? When you want to be told something about yourself, who do you get to tell it to you? And then positively, we're to put on a passionate following, fearing, obeying, hearing, and serving of the God who is. We're to hold fast to God who has loved us even when we were unlovable. So why should we respond this way? Firstly, God is testing us to reveal our love for him. He wants to show you who you are based on who you listen to and who you follow. Secondly, self-olatry always leads to death and punishment. And thirdly, God loves us and has done everything necessary to free us from sin and syncretism. God loves you, even though you listen and at some level may be following. Stop listening, start obeying. Stop listening and lovingly obey your loving God. Back in Deuteronomy 13, verses 6 through 11, God really ups the ante on us. It says this, If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend, who is as your own soul, entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the people who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones, because he has sought to draw you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall, shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. So the who of our second scenario is not a public figure, but it is one who is very close to home. Could be your mother, your brother, your best friend, even one's wife. The nature of the situation changes a bit because of the proximity of the person, the closeness of that person. What is said is nearly identical um, to, to what's being said in the, in the other scenario. Let us go and serve other gods. Yahweh plus, not Yahweh period. The major difference is that it's said in secret. And when compared to the first scenario, this one has a much greater pull on the hearer. Consider the weight 
of a brother speaking to another brother, the weight that that has, or a mother speaking to her son, or a wife in deep, intimate relationship with her husband, speaking to her husband, the weight and the pull that that has on the hearer. And God knows that. So what is the proper response? It's an emphatic repetition of what was said above. Do not yield or follow. Do not listen to. Do not pity. Do not spare. Do not conceal. Put to death. This is a radical call to execute anyone who would lead the people away from God, even family or friend. He's saying to the people, if you are lying in bed with your wife and she says, those gods that the other nations worship, they seem so interesting. Let us go and worship them. The proper, the proper response is to rise out of your bed, take your wife before the people, and stone her immediately. Put her to death, and that you would be the one to throw the first stone. God is calling them to a radical obedience. Or if your mother says, the gods of the other nations are more faithful than our God is, let us add worship and service of those gods to the worship and service of our God. You should, in devotion and obedience to God, take your mother that birthed you and nursed you and raised you and loved you and execute her along with all the people. You are to throw the first stone. This is the way that God is speaking to his people. So why would God have them respond this way? Why this type of response? We see three reasons in 10 and 11. First, in verse 10, because he or she sought to draw you away from the Lord. God says, once again, rebellion always results in death. Secondly, because God loves his people. He brought them out of the land of Egypt and the house of slavery. Thirdly, verse 11, so that all Israel would be discouraged from saying, let's go and serve other gods. This mandate should strike fear into the heart, to every heart that hears it. To us, this may seem an extreme measure to mandate a man to execute his son in order to conquer rebellion and idolatry. But the punishment shows us the weight of the crime. Brothers and sisters, do not miss this. The shadow of the cross of Christ looms very near in this passage. God, in love for his people and commitment to his own justice, executed his own son for the rebellion and idolatry of others. God is showing us something about himself here. God is not a hypocrite. God is not asking these people to do something that he will not do himself. God is showing something about himself. Do not miss this. So what does this passage mean for us as the people of God in this place at this time? So your little brother comes home from college and he's got a, for Christmas break, and he's got a coexist sticker on his car. He explains that all religions lead to God and that no God could be considered greater than another. He implies that you are ignorant and arrogant for believing that there's only one God who demands worship of him and him only. 
Maybe your father has made it clear to you on multiple occasions that he is not happy about your growing involvement in church. And he is concerned that you will become a hypocrite like the rest of them. He continually resists your attempts to have open dialogue about God. He is beginning to make it clear that if you are going to take this church thing so seriously, then it's going to get in the way of your relationship with him. Maybe you're a new Christian and your husband and children do not agree with your new desire to follow and obey Jesus. They don't want to hear about praying, definitely not church, and don't even mention Jesus. How should you respond? You're not going to hear this often, but you should do what Matt Joyner did. It's like a grenade. You see, I was the little brother. Just stupid enough to think that I knew something. I'd never been to college, but I had some ideas about the world. Uh, and I was very resistant to the gospel. And my older brother, Matt, invited me to church. And so I came, probably to poke holes and whatever was being said. This was in uh, the spring of 1997. And uh, afterward, we sat in his 1972 Chevy pickup. And he told me about Jesus and about what Jesus was doing in his life. And he told me that I was sinful and in danger, but that God had provided a way for me to have a life, to have a new life, to be free from, to be free from sin and death. And I was intrigued. Not intrigued enough to follow Jesus, but I was intrigued. My brother Matt and his family loved me really well over the next three years. Very kind to me, very gracious to me, included me in the things that they were doing and loved on me. And so, three years later, when I became a believer, I knew exactly what I needed to do. I needed to go tell my brother Merle about Jesus. And by God's grace, a year later, he came to know Jesus, became a follower of Jesus. Often, we let what our family or what our friends think about us dictate what we will say to them because we don't want to seem foolish. My brother Matt very boldly told me things that I did not want to hear, that I did not agree with. And it set into motion multiple things that God used to bring about my salvation. There are many of you here uh, who God is making it very clear to you that you need to do something different in your life to pursue God more wholeheartedly. And you begin to have questions like, well, what would my mother-in-law think about that? What would my dad say about that? What would my buddies, if I really got serious about following Jesus and Bible study and small group and really digging in to obedience towards God, what would they say? And often we let this famolatry dictate whether or not we're going to obey God. Jesus has a lot to say about famolatry. He says in Luke 14, 20, uh, 14, 25 to 27, he's basically saying, no Jesus plus Jesus period. He says this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister, yes, even your own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is saying, if you don't hate your family, even yourself, in comparison to way, the way that you love and are devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot be his disciple. If there's a relationship of higher priority, 
and of greater obedience in your life than the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot be his disciple. No fam-olatry in the kingdom. No Jesus plus, Jesus period. So you must place devotion to Christ as a higher priority. We see also in Matthew. Um, or in First Peter. Um, he, there are there are women that I know of in this church who have very hard situations, who are living day to day as a wife that uh, is living with a husband that's not a believer. That's hard. And the amazing thing is that God knows that. And he writes to you in the scriptures. And he says that. He says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if you do not obey the word, or even if, um, even if they do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. God loves you. He knows that this is hard. He knows. He cares. And he's written to you. And he wants to encourage you. Faithfully follow God in pure conduct. And God will handle the rest. I've seen this in, in my own life, the way that my mother um, has loved my father. And the heart change that I've seen happen in my dad's life through my, my, my mom's quiet, consistent devotion to God and service to her husband. It's, it's fantastic. It's just amazing. Um, so let me encourage you uh, as First Peter is. In short, our response should be a radical devotion to Christ that seeks the good and rescue of our family members and our friends. Your friends and family who speak ill of God and think ill of God are in danger of death. They deserve death and punishment. But God is gracious and he wants to use you to warn them of the danger ahead and the rescue that he provides through the death of his own son. Do not let famolatry hinder your communication of the good news. Deuteronomy 13, um, verses 12 through 18, give us another scenario. We see in verse 13, um, actually let's read this together. If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known, then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it be true and certain, be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction, all who are in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. You shall gather all its spoil into the midst of its open square and burn the city and all its spoil with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. None of the devoted things shall stick to your hand that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you as he swore to your fathers. If you obey the voice of your Lord, your God, keeping all his commandments that I'm commanding you today and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord, your God. 
We see in verse 13 that who we're dealing with in this scenario is a whole city. It seems that some worthless fellows from among God's people have gone out and they've led a whole city of people astray. Evidently, they're saying the same thing as the folks mentioned before. They're saying, let us go serve other gods. Yahweh plus, not Yahweh period. Again, God calls the people to a radical devotion and obedience to him. They should first respond with an investigation. They're to find out with absolute clarity if indeed the people have been led away from the Lord their God. It seems not only that there's been some talk about serving another God, but indeed the people have gone and are serving other gods. Their investigation, when complete and conclusive, gives way to another sweeping act of devotion and obedience. The people are to devote the whole city to destruction. Every person, every cow, are to be put to the sword. Furthermore, they are to take all the possessions and the wealth of that city and burn it in the center of town. Even more, the city is to never be rebuilt again. It is to stand as a reminder forever that God requires complete devotion and obedience. It's to be a signpost forever proclaiming no Yahweh plus, Yahweh period. Again, we see God's unfailing insistence that no person or place draw his people away from him. Up to this point, we've seen a very consistent pattern in the structure and wording of the passage. But in verse 17 and 18, there's a, there's a complete break from what has gone before. And I think that's a, to highlight verses 17 and 18. The explanation of why they should respond such is still present, but it looks and sounds a little bit different than what we've seen before. God says they are to do all of this that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show mercy and have compassion on them. In our passage thus far, the only people that have been implicated as guilty have been those who would lead God's people astray. Here, the need for mercy to be shown to all people, all the people, makes it clear that they too are guilty. So God is including everyone into this guilt. He's saying you all need compassion and you all need to be forgiven. You all need mercy. They're all in danger of the anger of God. They need God to show them compassion. So God tells them if they obey his voice, keep all his commands, and do what is right in his sight, then they will not face the fate of the destroyed city. In verse 17 and 18, we see two enduring truths about God. He has within him a deep compulsion to show compassion and mercy to the guilty. And he is bound by justice to punish any disobedience or wrongdoing. You see, God's saying you're all in danger because you've all sinned. You need mercy and compassion. This command to total obedience and complete right doing shows the people that they need a helper and they need a rescuer. They can't do it on their own. So how should we respond as God's people in this place at this time? Well, I think verse 17 gives us a clue. God says... As you heap the spoils of the city to be burned, be careful that none of the stuff from the city sticks to your hand. The word for stick to here is the same as from verse 4 that was translated hold fast to. 
We see a command to hold fast to or cling to God in verse 4 and a warning not to hold fast to or cling to the stuff God says destroy. Often, stuffolatry or holding on to the stuff of this world hinders our ability and desire to hold on to God. He is, it's as if he's calling to us, saying, hold on to me. And we're calling back to him, saying, I can't. I've got all this stuff in my hands. Like a foolish man who drowns to death, holding a jewel in his hand. We are like this. We allow the things that God has given us, the blessings, the stuff of this world, distract us, keep us, and hinder us from holding fast to, calling out to, and reaching out to our God. Friends, we have all disobeyed and therefore deserve death. But God has provided a way back to life and relationship with him. He has done this through executing his own son because of your sin. Will you throw down the stuff and open your hands and cling to God? The God that loves you and is holding on to you even though you are guilty. Will you throw down your stuff? I remember being a Christian. I've been a Christian for about a year and we were meeting over in the other building and Larry was preaching, and he said, often we think that we hold our sin like this, and that I've got it, and I can do what I want to with it. But really, the case is that our sin holds us, and it tells me where to go, and I obey it. Will you let go? Will you drop the stuff that is holding you? And will you cling to the God that loves you deeply? and has shown that great love for you by Christ's work on the cross. The worship team is going to come, and they're going to sing an initial song of reflection. And I want to ask you during that time to test yourself with these questions. What voices in my life seek to draw me away from God? What are they saying? How should I respond and why should I respond that way? As you do so, I want you to let the words of Ephesians 2 ring in your ears. Ephesians 2, 1 through 4 says this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, he saved us. Your God is merciful, and you are sinful. And he is calling you this day to lay down your stuff, to lay down yourself, and to lay down what your family and friends think about you in complete devotion, obedience, and service to him. Father, we ask and pray that you would do all this. We need you to help us, lead us, convict us, and empower us to function with a great desire to be obedient to you. We want 
to live in loving obedience to our loving God in obedience to you. And we ask that you would do that work in our hearts as you convict us during this time. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.